KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. In the beginning, there was light. That's what Brian Keating was told as an altar boy in the Catholic Church. He had his doubts, though, about the beginning. Because as a kid, Brian idolized the astronomer Galileo, even buying a telescope to see what the late scientist saw in the 1600s. It was exactly the same size that Galileo's telescope was. It was exactly the same dimensions. It could see the same craters on the moon, the same moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, all these glorious sights. Turns out, back in the day, the church wasn't so happy about what Galileo reported, all of his new theories about our solar system. And I learned that Galileo had still not been pardoned by the Vatican for his heresy, for his crimes against, you know, thought crimes against the state. That really just set me off because I, I really felt like I couldn't, I couldn't really follow um, an ideology, you know, that anyone who would do that to, to somebody like Galileo, my hero, you know, that wasn't an organization I wanted to be a part of anymore. Unlike Galileo, Brian grew up in a country that, for the most part, lauds scientific discovery. He could ask questions about the universe rather than accept answers given to him. In the beginning, there was light. Was there? How did we get here? How did the universe come to be? Are we alone? What was at the beginning of our universe as we know it? And how did it come to be that way? These questions drew Brian down a path of ambition. Notoriety, fame, glory. It is a cautionary tale of science at the highest stakes and the most extremes. And, and it's also a story of a personal pursuit of meaning as a scientist. This is Rad Scientist. where the scientist becomes the subject. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The Beginning. The story of Brian Keating and his science starts at the very birth of our universe the genesis of time and space, in the fleeting moments before everything went boom. And when you look back into the very, very early universe, it was conceived that the universe would basically be a point. <laughs> it would basically come to a point when all the galaxies, all the matter, all the energy in the universe was touching. And nobody could really understand that. They couldn't understand how the universe could basically be ignited into a Big Bang. The Big Bang didn't explain how it itself came to be. In fact, there were quite a few properties of our universe that weren't explained by the original Big Bang theory. Why was the universe so, so uniform, so smooth? Um, how could it get to a state in which the temperature, uh, when you looked out, or the density or the properties of the universe in any two directions, no matter how far apart they were from one another, were almost identical? And there was another problem. The flatness of the universe. 
Basically, our universe could have been closed like the surface of a sphere, open like a saddle, or flat like a tabletop. That is, if you think of the universe like a two-dimensional object. If you try to conceptualize this in three dimensions, your brain breaks. Or at least mine did. Anyways, it turns out that our universe is almost exactly flat, which would have taken such perfect conditions, it would have been a hell of a coincidence. So it had astrophysicists pretty curious. What could explain the flatness, the smoothness, and other observable properties of our universe? So some scientists uh, in the late uh, 1970s and early 1980s came up with the theory of inflation. So the theory of inflation was kind of like the ultimate match that ignited the Big Bang. What inflation said was that the universe was populated by this strange fluid, a strange force. Called the inflaton that was subject to quantum fluctuations. Small changes in the energy of particles that are due to chance. And even a small change in this field could set inflation in motion. One blip and... The universe would expand to unimaginable size. And when it did that, it would release energy. And that energy would seed the forces of um, gravity eventually to produce clusters of galaxies, clusters of stars, which would eventually produce planets, eventually produce people. Basically, the theory predicted that this explosion, which lasted just 1 times 10 to the negative 38th of a second, begot most of the stuff of the universe. It took the universe from a fraction of the size of a proton to the size of something that could fit in the palm of a hand. To contextualize this, it took 13.8 billion years after that for the same amount of expansion to happen. That second expansion took the universe from grapefruit size to its size today. So that initial expansion would have happened so rapidly, faster than the speed of light, that things that were now on opposite sides of the universe were touching just instants before. That could explain that smoothness problem. The flatness problem is solved by inflationary theory as well. The expansion took away any curvature that might have existed and stretched it out. So you can see now why inflationary theory was a pretty big deal in the physics community. It solved some inconsistencies that had been dogging them for a while. It was also an intriguing theory because some of the models of inflation predicted that our universe might not be the only one. Maybe there are accompanying universes to ours. Maybe ones that preceded us in time or that will follow us in time or are parallel to ours in a very, very concrete and specified way. The same inflation that started our universe may have made bubbles of space and time that could have begot other universes. Of course, inflation is just one theory of how it all came to be, but one of the more popular ones. And like all good scientific theory, it makes predictions that we can test. We may be able to understand how we came to be, and if we live in the only universe, if we can just provide evidence for the inflation theory. So if we discover this, then that would mean that not only are we not the only planet, not only is the sun not the only star, not only is our galaxy not the only galaxy, but our universe is not the only universe. Ideally, 
To see if inflation happened, we would just look out to the furthest spots in the universe. Those would also be the earliest parts and measure the expansion. But there's a problem. We can't actually see that far back because in the beginning, there was no light. Or at least there was no light that made it out of the early hot universe soup. That's because at first the universe was so dense and so hot that there were just particles, protons, neutrons, electrons, just moshing with each other with nothing holding them together. And any time a photon formed, it got bounced around or absorbed. It wasn't until way after the proposed inflation that the universe expanded and cooled enough that the first neutral elements started forming and photons could finally make it out. The universe went from foggy to clear. Now that first light that we can detect was formed about 380,000 years after the universe began. It's not light anymore. That early radiation has dissipated and cooled to become microwaves. That's why it's called the cosmic microwave background. While we can't directly observe what came before these microwaves, they might hold clues about earlier times. According to Einstein's theory of general relativity, when matter moves, it can cause a ripple in the fabric of space-time called a gravitational wave. The ripple is really, really tiny, but it can become observable if the mass is huge, like the mass of a black hole or... All the mass of the entire universe exploding forth at one moment in time. If inflation occurred, there would be waves of gravity propagating throughout the universe, which would later imprint the microwave background with this twisting, curling pattern that we called B-modes. If these twists and turns could be observed... That would be, you know, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, some say. Evidence that inflation happened. And if Brian or anyone else found this, it was sure to be Nobel-worthy. Ultimately, it drove me to come up with this idea for this telescope called BICEP to measure the very first instance of the universe, maybe at absolute zero, but not absolute zero temperature, absolute zero in time. The telescope. Brian names his project BICEP. So the BICEP stands for Background Imager of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. There is also another reason Brian called it BICEP. So BICEP was a kind of play on words because the pattern of light that we were looking for was when the microwaves would be twisted. So this twisting pattern of microwaves are called curls. And what I named BICEP after is the muscle on your body that does curls. Even with the macho name, the bicep was less than ripped. It's, it's really quite diminutive. But because of its small size, it was possible for me to show that we could build a telescope which was as powerful as this enormous 10-meter telescope, which cost you know many, many times what bicep cost. But you could do it in a telescope that you could build and basically is the size of a person. Bicep was built with many small glorified thermometers that could precisely measure the temperature of the cosmic microwave background and capture the curls if they were there. We had no idea, remember, if inflation even occurred. So the signal could be zero. But you build the experiment with one goal in mind, to make the strongest, most confident de detection that you could make if the signal is there. 
And that was going to be no simple feat. What we're looking for is a type of heat. So uh, heat comes from everything that's above the temperature known as absolute zero. So anything, even the South Pole, which is, you know, 30, 40, 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, even those temperatures are much, much hotter, potentially, you know, in, uh, billions of times hotter than the signal that we're looking for. But the South Pole is still one of the coolest places on our planet. So it was really the best option for Brian's telescope. And so I set out to build a telescope, which ultimately took me to the bottom of the world, to Antarctica, the very you know, axis on which the Earth turns through the South Pole. That is where Brian heads next, after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The South Pole. On March 29th, Captain Robert Falcon Scott managed one last entry in his journal. I start to read all these uh, accounts and the logs of the famous explorers that reached the South Pole 100 years before I was going to set out. And that was, a, that was a big mistake because, you know, most of them died. Uh, even the ones that lived had, like, terrible frostbite, lost digits on their hands and toes. And it was an altogether miserable experience for, for most of them. I do not think I can write more. Oh, Scott. For God's sake, look after our people. Nowadays, it's not as heroic a journey as it was in the early 20th century, but it's still a slog. It can take up to two weeks to get to the South Pole from San Diego. Multiple airplane rides later, with a pit stop to pick up clothes for sub-zero temperatures, and Brian arrives at the pole. The South Pole is like being on that, you know, frozen moon in the, in the, in the movie Star Wars. You know, it's a Tatooine or something like that. You get off and you look around you, and it's completely flat and it's completely white, and you're out of breath because it's about ten thousand feet above sea level. You're on a two-mile pack of, you know, snow bay, snowpack, and you look around, and all you see, the only things that break the monotony on the horizon, are the buildings that are built there. Looking around, all these people are walking around with boots that are like three inches thick, vacuum-insulated boots to keep getting frostbitten, bright red parkas to help helicopters see your dead body from, you know, thousands of feet above them. Every square inch of your body is completely covered up. Breath will freeze. If you spit, it can freeze in the middle of the air. And it was the closest I think I'll come to being an astronaut. Brian and his team meticulously set up the BICEP and start the rigorous testing needed to make sure that the signals they get are precise. And then it starts recording. The results. It took many trips to the South Pole and three years of data collection to ultimately find... There really wasn't enough signal to noise to go, uh, to go as deep as some theoretical predictions had made for us to examine. Even with careful planning and lots of calculations, he couldn't have predicted the new developments that had come from other teams suggesting that signals that Brian was looking for in the cosmic microwave background would be smaller than he thought smaller than he had built BICEP to detect. 
it needed to be more sensitive. It was time for a sequel, Bicep 2. We couldn't upgrade, its make its optics bigger, but we could make more detectors and more sensitive detectors as well. And that's what we did. So Bicep 2 increased the number of detectors that we had to about 10 times more detectors. And that brought up our ability to make dis- discoveries 10 times faster. By the time Bicep 2 came to fruition, though, Brian was no longer in charge of the project. And now Brian suspected that if Bicep 2 was able to find the signal that Bicep 1 could not, he would not get most of the recognition. He would not be the recipient of a hypothetical Nobel Prize. The Rift. So I was at Caltech when I came out with the idea for BICEP. When I moved down to UCSD to become a professor in, in 2004, we had, we had brought more people onto the team. And they were working at the level that I was working when I created BICEP. Namely, they were postdocs. So they were working at Caltech for my, my mentor, the same mentor as me. Uh, and when I left uh, the, the laboratories in Caltech, the priority was slightly shifted, that my advisor wanted to also protect and, and nurture the career of these other postdocs, as he had done for me. He had uh, um, decided that we, I would continue leading this BICEP-1 instrument, and I would have a role, you know, a pretty large role in BICEP-2, but that other people would, 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 you know, kind of take more of a leadership role, the ones that were located at Caltech. Brian wasn't in charge of BICEP-2, even though it was an extension of his original idea. That was, you know, that was a little, uh, um, you know, un- uncomfortable at first, just because you go from being kind of in your, you know, parents' house, and then you get kicked out into the real world, and, and now you're on your own. To take that analogy further, your younger siblings get to take over your bedroom, and when you come home, you have to sleep on the couch. So sometimes you stay at a friend's house instead. I'd also taken a very large leadership position in a competitive experiment, competitor experiment called Polar Bear. And those in charge of the BICEP2 weren't particularly happy about Brian's new collaboration. They basically at Caltech had, had almost convinced my former advisor that I shouldn't be involved at all in the original project that I had started. So that was a really painful experience for me. These dual collaborations aren't that uncommon in cosmology. He appealed to his advisor. It's not like playing on the, you know, the Padres that you can't play on the Dodgers. I mean, it's not like that in science. Science should be open pursuit of truth and knowledge, and that's what science means is knowledge, right? So whatever pathway you get to explore and understand the universe during the very brief time that you're alive and during the even briefer time when you have time to actually do scientific, make scientific discoveries, I don't think you should begrudge someone for, for trying to spread his or her bets around to make sure that they accomplish something and and are fulfilled by their discoveries. His advisor decided to let Brian stay a part of the BICEP2 team. In the end, he, he ended up apologizing and, and invited me back not only to be a member of the BICEP2 collaboration, but to be one of its, you know, one of its leaders and participate in it fully. And we, and we did that. We maintained a, a wonderful relationship until uh, he unfortunately ended up committing suicide in the year 2010. And it was a real devastating blow to me because he was not only my mentor and, and my, you know, kind of scientific advisor, he had also become very close friends. With Brian's advisor gone, the same postdocs that were upset by his work on Polar Bear were now in charge. Without the same kind of affectionate feelings for me, shall we say. His role became even smaller in the BICEP2 team, but he was still included in meetings. And he knew, a year before it was announced, when the team had hit on something big. Wait a second. We think we see something. 
something that might reveal how it all began. The stakes are high because they aren't the only team gathering data that might tell us if inflation happened. And the prestige only goes to the first to make a discovery. Find out what happens on the next episode of Rad Scientist, coming in two weeks. For this episode's Moment of Xenopus, a really, really, really small amount of time. About a billions of a billions of a billions of a millions of billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth. One trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth. A millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth. Trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. This is a memorable day in the history of science, and you and I were here to share it together. All right. Rad Scientist is produced and written by me, Margot Wall. Our theme guitar riff is by Grant Fisher, logo by Kyle Fisher, no relation. Music for this episode was by Herman Schmidt, Gravitron, Inspector J, Jobro, Frankum, Tim Kahn, and Clankfield. This episode featured a segment from the Discovery Channel documentary, A Race for the Poles. At KPBS, Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator, Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. This program is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Local Content Fund. If you like this episode, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people see the podcast. And of course, stay rad. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.